Good morning. Thank you, band, for leading us in worship this morning, preparing our hearts to hear God's Word. Uh, If you have a copy of the Bible with you, I invite you to take it out. Turn with me to the book of Colossians, Colossians chapter 4, verses 12 through 18. This is our final sermon in our study of the book of Colossians. If you don't know me, my name is DJ. I'm one of the pastors here at Trinity Church. Here at Trinity, we have a high view of the Bible. We love God's word. We believe that it is how God speaks to us. It's how he reveals himself to us. And so in our teaching, usually our pattern is we go through books of the Bible, line by line, paragraph by paragraph. We've been going through Colossians now since September, and this morning brings that study to its conclusion. Uh, So if you did not get a listening guide on your way in, it will help you follow along. It's got some space for notes, an outline of the uh, the sermon and the text. Just slip your hand up if you did not get one. Todd will make sure that, uh, that you get that delivered to you. And again, turn with me to Colossians 4, 12 through 18. Seven months we've been going through the book. Seven months, 22 sermons, and today we bring it to a close. So just as a little teaser, what's next, you might ask? We we don't know what else to do in this church if we haven't been studying Colossians. Uh, We are going to be next week taking a a pause for Easter. We're going to be studying Acts 2, the first ever Christian sermon that was preached as uh, as. Uh, Peter stands up in front of the people in Jerusalem and says, what has happened? What has Jesus done? And how should we respond to it? The most basic of all Christian messages. So be excited to, to celebrate Christ's resurrection next week as we look at that. If you have a friend uh, that does not know Jesus, this is going to be a very good week to bring them, to invite them to Trinity. They're going to hear an intro to the Christian faith. And so encourage you, invite people, bring people with you next week. Uh, and then after Easter, we're going to start a study of the book of Ruth. So if you want to... Uh, to read ahead where we're going to be going. Ruth is four chapters. It's in the Old Testament. It's a wonderful picture of God's redemptive heart. And so I would encourage you over the next couple of weeks, get in, read through Ruth, and prepare your heart for our next study that we're going to do together. But today we bring Colossians to a close. Endings are a big deal, right? All of us could, could point to our favorite books, our favorite movies, our favorite stories, and, and I, would, I would dare to guess that the ending of the story is, is where everything swells to a conclusion. It's what you remember maybe even the most, uh, the most starkly. For me, endings always, always matter. A, a good movie can be spoiled by a terrible ending, and I've got Several that come to mind, one in particular, I'm not going to go details, but a movie that I loved and I was sitting through it and for like an hour and a half, it was just so, so good and thrilling and exciting and original. And then in the last five minutes, they did something just dumb and it ruined the whole thing. I've never watched it again and I've never had any desire to watch it again. A bad ending can spoil a good film. I'm into endings anytime I watch a trilogy of movies or a series, the last chapter is always my favorite because it's important to see how we bring something to a conclusion. When someone is on their deathbed and they give their last words, we pay special heed to the last words because what you say when time is short is important. It's urgent. And so how do you bring a book like Colossians to a conclusion? We've seen some amazing truths in this book. We've seen the supremacy of Jesus over all things. We've seen how all of our lives are transformed now into an opportunity for worship. Whatever you do, do to the glory of God. We've seen the radical transformation that the gospel brings to our families, the radical transformation it brings to social relationships, all these big and glorious and amazing truths. So how do you put a bow on that? How does Paul bring his letter to a conclusion? Well, the answer is he reminds us that it's a letter. It's very easy to forget sometimes as we're going through the Bible that the majority of the New Testament, including the book that we have today, is interpersonal communication. These are letters written by individuals to people. These are letters from the heart, a a, a desire to communicate. Here is what you need, Colossians, to grow in the Lord, to overcome the obstacles that are coming in your way. This is a personal letter. And so this morning, we're going to focus a little bit on the personal end of things as Paul draws it to a close. We're going to focus on the church. Who are we? What are we supposed to be about? And this is not the church as organization. This is not the church as programs. This is not the church as amazing band or dynamic preacher or slick presentation. None of those things are the church. The church might have some of those things, 
Although Amazing Preacher is probably not going to be on the top 10 for today, but the church has some of these things sometimes, but the church is not those things. The church is not a building, it's not an organization, it's not a program, it's not a presentation. The church is people. And as Paul brings his letter to a close this morning, he's talking about people, the people he's writing to and the other people that are joining him in his ministry effort. Seth kind of started us down this path last week in verses 7 through 11, and we're just going to take the baton from him and pick up where he left off. We're going to look at the relationships that Paul talks about. We're going to look at the people he mentions, and we're even in the very last verse going to catch a deeply personal glimpse into his own heart. And so in that process, as we go through these verses, again, it's easy to have throwaway verses here. You know, Seth talked about last week, nobody has genealogies or final greetings as their back tattoo. Nobody has it as their life verse. But there is gold to be mined here. I don't want you to just see Greek names. I don't want you to see stale letters on a page. I want you to look at this passage this morning and see us. Because this letter is about the church. And the church is us. It is full of people in Colossae. It's full of people in Crestwood. And so as we look at Paul's heart, as we look at his admonitions and encouragements and his greetings, see his message and his reminder that we, the body of Christ, are called to follow in these footsteps. So join me, Colossians chapter 4. We're going to read together verses 12 through 18, and then we will dive right in. Paul says, Epaphras who is one of you, a servant of Christ Jesus, greets you. He's always struggling on your behalf in his prayers, that you may stand mature and fully assured in all the will of God. For I bear him witness that he has worked hard for you and for those in Laodicea and in Hierapolis. Luke, the beloved physician, greets you, as does Demas. Give my greetings to the brothers at Laodicea and to Nympha and the church in her house. And when this letter has been read among you, have it also read in the church of the Laodiceans, and see that you also read the letter from Laodicea. And say to Archippus, see that you fulfill the ministry that you have received in the Lord. I, Paul, write this greeting with my own hand. Remember my chains. Grace be with you. Pray with me. Our Father, as we come to your word this morning, what we know not, teach us. What we have not, give us. What we are not, make us, as only your spirit can do. To the glory and the fame of your name and your kingdom, we pray. Amen. So, I'm calling this sermon One Last Thing. What is it that Paul closes with? What do these final greetings have to tell us about his heart for the people, what the church should be like? And the first greeting that we're going to zero in on, these first couple verses in verses 12 through 13, are centered around this man named Epaphras. So Paul is in the midst of sending greetings. He's relaying messages from those who are with him. And the first greeting that we get is a greeting from Epaphras. So Epaphras is with Paul, and he sends his greetings through Paul to the church at Colossae. And so Paul doesn't just pass on Epaphras' greeting. Like you can imagine Epaphras saying, you know, hey, send my greetings to the Colossians. Let them know I say hi. Paul doesn't just write that in, though. Paul includes some information about Epaphras, about the kind of man he was, about the things that he was doing on behalf of the people, how intensely he was involved in the lives of the Colossians. And it's here that we see our first truth that we're going to see this morning. And that's that the church struggles for one another. The church struggles for one another. As we look through all these names, as we look through all these greetings, we're not going to see instructions given to us necessarily. We're not going to see a lot of of prescriptive passages. We're going to see a lot of descriptive texts. What's the difference between those two? When we look at the Bible, there are prescriptive texts and there are descriptive texts. A prescriptive text, think prescription. Like when you go to the pharmacy, they write a pres- your doctor writes a prescription. That's an order for you to go and take this medication. A prescriptive text are texts that say, love one another, uh, make no provision for the flesh, glorify God in all you do. They are commands, they're instructions that we are given to obey. 
There's, there's not really going to be much in the way of instruction in this text. We have descriptive passages. We have a text that is describing events, that is describing people. And so we don't learn from those in quite the same way that we learn from a prescriptive text. But there is there are things to be learned. Like when you read the stories of the Old Testament, when you read narratives, when you read the biographies of Jesus in Matthew, Mark, Luke, and John, by the accounting of events, we learn principles and we learn things that we can apply to our lives. This morning is going to be like that. And so the first person, the first greeting that we look to is this man, Epaphras. Now you might remember this name. If it sounds familiar, that's because way back in chapter one, so back in September, October, we would have read Epaphras' name. He came up in the beginning of the book. Colossians 1, 5 through 8 says, the gospel which has come to you, as indeed in the whole world it is bearing fruit and increasing, as it also does among you since the day you heard it and understood the grace of God in truth. So Paul's calling them back to when you first heard the gospel that is doing all these amazing things. And he continues, just as you learned it from Epaphras, our beloved fellow servant, he is a faithful minister of Christ on your behalf and has made known to us your love in the Spirit. Now, remember, we've talked about this before. Paul has never actually met the Colossians face-to-face. He's never been there. He's never seen this church. He's had communication with them and about them, but he doesn't know them. Paul didn't plant the church at Colossae. It's most likely that this guy Epaphras did, that he was one of the, the, the missionaries who first spoke the gospel to these people's lives. And probably introduced many of them to Jesus, probably got this church planted and up and going. So Paul is sending his greetings back to them. And he's saying, Epaphras, this one who introduced you to Jesus, he sends his greetings and he sends his love. But he doesn't simply pass along greetings. He describes something of the heart and the love that this man has for them. Epaphras, who is one of you, a servant of Christ Jesus, greets you. And he's always struggling on your behalf in his prayers that you may stand mature and fully assured in the word of God. The church struggles for one another. Two ways I want us to see through Epaphras' example that the church should be struggling for one another. The first is in prayer. Right? We're told Epaphras struggles on their behalf in his prayers in verse 12. Now the word that's translated as struggling right here is the Greek word agonizo. If that sounds vaguely familiar, it's because it's where we get the word agonize. The term is used by Paul a few times in the Bible. One time I want to point you to is in 1 Corinthians chapter 9. Paul uses this term to describe what athletes do at competition. Right? When athletes compete in the games, when he uses that phrase, compete is this word agonizo, they agonize. So I want you to think about those of you who've participated in sports or, or know people who have, they don't just get up on game day and go and, and play a game of basketball. They don't just show up at the track and run their best ever 100 meter dash time. They work. They, uh, they put in time and effort to diligently, blood, sweat, and tears, work at becoming the best that they are so they can achieve the prize that they're going for. They agonize in working out, in applying their craft day after day. And Paul says that Epaphras in that way agonizes over the Colossians in his prayers. He's always struggling on your behalf in his prayers. It's a very vivid picture, right? When you see the, the very bright and stark image that Paul paints to us of a man who through blood, sweat, and tears is praying passionately for these people. So, I mean, it's one thing to pray for somebody, right? It's, it's very simple to say a prayer for someone. It's another thing entirely to agonize over someone in prayer, to struggle for someone in prayer, to pour effort and to put your back into it, maybe in our modern way of saying things. But I want us to think, what was Epaphras praying for? What was it that stirred him up so much that he was struggling for them in this way? He was struggling on their behalf in his prayers, verse 12, that you may stand mature and fully assured in all the will of God. We we pray for all sorts of things for others, right? We pray for recovery from sickness. We pray for financial provision. We pray for people when they're going through difficulties at work, uh, maybe difficulties in relationships. All those are good things. Those are things we should pray for for one another. But we've talked about it before in this study, and it bears repeating again now. If we take a survey of the prayers of Paul, of the prayers of the other individuals that we see throughout the New Testament, the most frequent prayer we find 
is that people would be strengthened and would grow in their relationship with Jesus Christ. That is the theme that dominates the prayers of Paul. And it's the theme here that characterizes the prayers of Epaphras, who is struggling on behalf of these people. We should be struggling for one another in prayer. So let me ask you a question. Have you prayed for someone in this room for their growth in Christ this week? Have you prayed that over the past week for someone in this room to grow in Christ? If you have, that's awesome. That's great. That's what we want to cultivate here at Trinity is a people who prays for each other, who lifts each other before the throne. We are our brother's keeper. We are our sister's keeper. He has knitted us together into this body. But it's one thing to ask you if you've prayed for somebody this week. Have you agonized in prayer for someone in this room's growth in Christ this week? We're just we're raising the bar. We're taking it up a level. Have you poured out your soul on behalf of one of your brothers or sisters this week? Have you done so with the same passion and effort as the competitors at the Olympics? You think back to the Winter Olympics just a few weeks ago, and we saw all these skiers and snowboarders and skaters, and they always do the little personal story about them and how hard they worked, how much they've sacrificed to get where they were. Have you prayed like that this week for someone in this room? Have you left it all out on the court like those competitors in March Madness? You know, over the past couple of weeks of basketball, the shots that you see at the end of of all the games, you see the one team celebrating, and inevitably you get the shots on TV of the other team. And frequently, these are are grown men in tears on the sideline because what they've worked for, strived for, agonized for is over. The dream has died. But they've poured so much of themselves into this game that the emotion just floods out. Have you agonized for someone like that this week? Have you struggled in prayer? How do we get there? Because I imagine if we were to take a show of hands, and I'll spare us all and we won't, very few of us, if any, would would be willing to raise our hand and say, yes, I've poured my soul out like that this week. How do I get there? How do I become that sort of prayerful person? How do I become like Epaphras? and struggle on behalf of people? Well, I would suggest to you that we've only seen half the story. And the first step to follow Epaphras' example in verse 12 is to follow Epaphras' example in verse 13. He struggles on behalf of them in his prayers that they may stand mature and fully assured in all the will of God. But verse 13 tells us, Paul says, For I bear him witness that he has worked hard for you and for those in Laodicea, and in Hierapolis. The church should struggle for one another in prayer. The church also struggles for one another in work. Epaphras prayed deeply for the Colossians because he worked hard for the Colossians. He was invested. He was involved in their lives. They weren't just names on a roll to him. He wasn't just this guy that was sitting back in his office and checking off all the names on the list as he went through his prayer time. He knew faces. These were people he had introduced to Jesus. They were brothers. They were sisters. He was proclaiming the gospel to them, and he labored to see the church built. I imagine that as the Colossians read this letter, and they said that Paul bears witness how hard Epaphras has worked for them, I imagine all of them would have some story, would have some anecdote. Yeah, he did that for me. He invested in my life. He shared the gospel with me. He prayed for me. He discipled me. He taught me. He worked to see me grow. And put yourself in a Epaphras' position. You've planted this church. You've seen growth by God's grace. But, but remember, what's the occasion of Paul writing this letter? The church had started to drift. False teachers had crept in and were turning the people towards this notion that, that Jesus, he's nice, he's great, but he's not quite enough, Right? You need this special knowledge. You need to follow the Jewish laws and forms. You need to do the right things to add to the gospel that you're seeing. And so Epaphras' baby is starting to wander off the path. What does he do? Well, why is Epaphras with Paul? Right? Epaphras planted the church at Colossae, but now when the letter's being read, he's not there. He's with Paul. The reason is, the most likely answer is that Epaphras had journeyed to see Paul and to report on what was going on in the churches of the Lycus Valley, Colossae, Laodicea, Hierapolis. So he leaves his people and he goes to Paul to say, 
Here's what's going on. These churches have been planted, they're growing, they're flourishing, but this threat is coming. They're they're starting to, to waver, they're starting to drift. In fact, it's most likely that Epaphras' report to Paul is what prompted Paul to write this letter. So this man is a shepherd protecting his sheep, and he goes to Paul, and he tells Paul what's going on, and that's what generates this letter here to the church in Colossae. And so Epaphras, even now, even from miles and miles away, is working for the sanctification of his people. His prayers weren't just abstract theory. They were passionate because his love for them was passionate, his love for God was passionate, and it spurned action. It spurned him to get involved, to get invested. So I would say to you this morning, do you want to pray like Epaphras? Do you want to agonize? Do you want to struggle? Do you want to have that sort of vibrant and robust and deep and passionate prayer life? Do you want to pray like that for your spouse? Do you want to pray like that for your kids, for your community group, for your church? Well, then I would ask you some of these questions. Are you spending time with them? Do you know their hurts, their fears, their dreams? Are you asking them about their walk with Jesus and really listening for a genuine answer? Are you working in actions, words, prayers to help them stand mature and fully assured in the word of God? The more deeply you're invested, the more passionate your prayers will become. That's the pattern that we see in Epaphras. He worked hard, and because he worked hard, he prayed hard. Our heart will follow our affections. So are you training your affections on your brothers and sisters in Jesus Christ through what you do? How can you cultivate this week? Because this, this it's very easy when we hear stuff like this, when we see this massive example, and we feel like we're way down here to just feel like that example is sledgehammering us over the head. I, I'll never get there. It's not even worth trying. What are some practical steps you and I can take this week to start to live this kind of life? Text somebody a Bible verse. As you're reading, as you're spending time in the Word, Thursday morning, and you come across a verse that impacts you, that speaks truth, think of someone in this room who could probably use it and just send them a text message right there. It's a practical way. You can begin to get invested. Ask about that prayer request that someone mentioned at group last week. It's much easier to take prayer requests than it is to remember prayer requests. But if somebody said, you know, hey, would you pray for this this coming week? Sometime this week, just ask them, hey, how's how's that going? What's God doing? Ask what you can be praying for. Ask somebody, hey, how can I pray for you this week? And then follow up in a couple days to ask how it's going. Put a hook in that stays, that's not just a parachute in, hey, how's it going, and then I'll see you next Sunday. Get invested, get involved. Find out how your brothers and sisters are doing this week. And that will lead you, the more you do it, to pray for them more deeply, to agonize like Epaphras does. Struggle, work, pray, get involved. The church struggles for one another. If we're not putting out a little spiritual sweat on behalf of our brothers and sisters in the church, then we're coming up short of the biblical example. Well, we move on from Epaphras, and then we're going to see a lot more uh, little greetings, little references here. Uh, And these are some to individuals. These are some to to groups. Not, Not really as much time and focus as we get from Epaphras. But in these greetings, we're going to see a wide variety of people. And each of these people has a story of their own. Some are good, Some are bad, some are little more than a footnote, but each of these stories has something to teach us. And the the overarching picture I want you to get from these five examples is that the church is full of the faithful and failures. We are not a perfect body. We are full of people who are doing great things, we are full of people who are failing, and very often we are full of those two people are the same person. That's what we find in all of us. But we're going to hear examples here of the faithful. We're going to hear examples of the failures. And each of them have something to remind us of that we need to keep in mind as we struggle and labor like Epaphras for one another in the scriptures. So let's take a look at the faithful and the failures. The first example that we see is in the form of a Gentile doctor, right? Verse 14, Luke, the beloved physician, greets you, as does Demas. So Luke, the beloved physician, greets you. Just a very quick little greeting. 
It's from Luke, the beloved physician. Dr. Luke is the author of the Gospel of Luke and also the book of Acts. So Luke was a guy who was a Gentile uh, and who was commissioned by a wealthy benefactor named Theophilus to go and, and prepare an account of the things that Theophilus had been taught. And so he investigates the life of Jesus and he prepares an account, which is what we have today as the gospel of Luke. And then he goes even further and prepares the story of the early church and how Jesus's message began to grow throughout the world of Asia Minor, throughout uh, Jerusalem, throughout Europe. And we see this account as the book of Acts. And so it's very possible that some of the Colossians had had read his gospel, or even if it wasn't yet completed at this point, they had heard about Jesus. They knew about Jesus because Luke had told them. They had heard Luke's account, and that is how they had been introduced to Jesus Christ. And so Luke, who was with Paul at this time, sends greetings to them. But I want you to think about the statement that's present here. Because on the one hand, it seems very surface, right? But there's actually something really kind of stinging under the surface for the struggles that these people are going through. Remember, the, this church of Gentile believers at Colossae, what are they being tempted by right now? They're being tempted to think that the faith really required a certain Jewishness of them if they were going to ascend to a serious level. Right? They had to follow the Old Testament feasts and festivals. They had to perhaps be circumcised. It's very likely that the, the false teachers that had crept in were introducing and demanding, you've got you've to be a certain level of Jewish in order to really follow Jesus Christ. But then Paul closes here with a greeting from the only Gentile to write a book of Scripture. You ever thought about that? That Luke is actually the only Gentile who wrote a book of the Bible. All the other New Testament letters are from Jews. Of course, all of the Old Testament, obviously, written by Hebrew authors. But Paul sends a greeting to these Gentiles who are tempted to think they have to become Jewish from a Gentile who wrote a book of the Bible. You can almost imagine Paul saying, look, you think you need to follow the Jewish forms and ceremonies to truly know Jesus? Tell that to Luke here. God led him on the team. He gave him a pen and paper. We see in this Gentile, Gentile doctor an example for these people that God can use them. God can pluck someone from outside his core group and use them to do amazing things. And so he's our first example. We see Luke, the beloved physician that greets them, this Gentile doctor. But the next greeting paints us a picture of a cowardly deserter. The next reading comes from Demas. And you might think, well, I mean, He's just mentioned here, just Luke, the beloved physician, greets you, as does Demas. Where do you get off saying that he's a cowardly deserter? Well, Demas' name is mentioned three times in the scriptures. It's mentioned here. Uh, it's mentioned in Philemon, where Paul, again, includes him in the closing greeting and says that he's simply one of Paul's fellow workers. Demas, one of my fellow workers, greets you. And he's also mentioned in 2 Timothy. And 2 Timothy, which is Paul's final letter before his death, we find a sad ending to Demas' story. I want you to listen to 2 Timothy 4, verses 9 through 11, where Paul says, Do your best to come to me soon. For Demas, in love with this present world, has deserted me and gone to Thessalonica. Crescens has gone to Galatia, Titus to Dalmatia. Luke alone is with me. Demas had left Paul in his hour of great need, in the hours preceding his death. He left him not to go do ministry somewhere, but because of cowardice. Paul doesn't tell us why Crescens left. He doesn't tell us why Titus left, but he's very specific about why Demas left because he's in love with this present world and he has deserted me. As Paul faced his death in a Roman jail, Demas's love for the present world won out over faithfulness to his friend. But here in Colossians, he's included in the greeting. The Colossians would have no idea. Paul probably had no idea at this point that this guy would go off the rails. As he's just one of the church. He's part of the team. In your Christian life, some will likely desert you. Chances are, you'll even lose a close friend or two along the way. And once you've experienced that, you're going to be tempted to guard your heart. You're going to be tempted to, to pull back from investing and opening up to others as deeply. 
the reminder that, that Paul gives to us this morning through this greeting of Demas is resist that temptation. Love with reckless abandon anyway. Count the cost. Know going in that when we invest in each other this deeply, this passionately, that when you're struggling on behalf of other people, we're all sinners. This whole room, every single one of us. And I don't know six months from now, 12 months from now, five years from now, if any of our bonds of friendship will be broken. You know, many of us came from Crossing Church. We went through some difficult times there uh, three, four years ago where there were a large number of people that, that moved on, that went to other places. And not just fringe people, but close relationships were broken. Pain was felt. There were people that I never would have thought in a million years I would break fellowship with, and that happened. And I've thought more than once as we, in it, as we set out to, to plant Trinity Church, and we've got this core team that is so tight-knit, and there's such a great love and spirit that's at work here. And I've wondered, like, will any of us go those, those same separate ways? Will sin drive a wedge in between any of these relationships? It might. It might. Because I'm a sinner, and I can screw stuff up, and so can you. But that doesn't change the love we're called to in the moment. Don't try to protect your heart from future hurt by holding back. Love with abandon. Invite Demas into the core group. And if he leaves one day, he leaves. But that doesn't change the fact that we are called to invest in one another deeply, to agonize over one another, to struggle for one another, to build one another up. Resist the temptation to hold back because someone might go off the rails down the road. And trust the Lord to guard your heart and to carry you through those times when they come. That's the lesson from the greeting of the cowardly deserter. The next greeting is to a lukewarm church. The next greetings are passed on to the Colossian sister church in the neighboring city of Laodicea. Verse 15, give my greetings to the brothers at Laodicea and to Nympha and the church in her house. And when this letter has been read among you, have it also read in the church of the Laodiceans and see that you also read the letter from Laodicea. So a couple things. Paul asks them to send the letter on to the Laodiceans, and after they've read it, and or after they've read the letter, send it on to the Laodiceans, and then also he's got a letter that's gone to Laodicea, and he says, when they're done, you read that one. Now, there is no book of Laodicea in the Bible, so that letter has been lost to time. Um, after reading this, I really wish that we could have it and find out what did he say to Laodicea, but God doesn't think we need it, so we don't have it. But the, the point is they're to swap letters when they're done. So what's the implication there? The implication is that these two churches were going through similar struggles and temptations. What Paul says to Colossae is applicable to Laodicea and vice versa. No doubt the same false teachers that were troubling the Colossians were making their rounds to their surrounding cities as well. The Laodiceans were probably dealing with some of these same temptations. But after Paul's letters, right, all's going to be well. This, this is going to be our happily ever after here for the Colossians, for the Laodiceans. I mean, when Paul writes to you, then what could possibly go wrong? Like, this is, this is the greatest missionary who ever lived. This is the original Christian missionary. Surely once he writes these things and addresses them and encourages them and bolsters them and sends them out the door, focus on Jesus, praise Jesus, glorify him, whatever you eat or drink or say or do, glorify Christ, that's going to fix things, right? And they're going to be on the right track. Listen to what we hear about the Laodiceans the next time we run into them, which is Revelation chapter 3. In Revelation 3, 14 through 22, Jesus addresses the church at Laodicea in his revelation to John. And he says this, And to the angel of the church in Laodicea write, The words of the Amen, the faithful and true witness, the beginning of God's creation, I know your works. You are neither cold nor hot. Would that you were either cold or hot. So because you're lukewarm and neither hot nor cold, I will spit you out of my mouth. For you say, I am rich. I have prospered. I need nothing. Not realizing that you are wretched, pitiable, poor, blind, and naked. I counsel you to buy from me gold refined by fire so that you may be rich and white garments that you may clothe yourself, and the shame of your nakedness may not be seen, and salve to anoint your eyes so that you may see. 
Those whom I love, I reprove and discipline. So be zealous and repent. Behold, I stand at the door and knock. If anyone hears my voice and opens the door, I will come into him and eat with him and he with me. The one who conquers, I will grant him to sit with me on my throne as I also conquered and sat down with my father on his throne. He who has an ear, let him hear what the Spirit says to the churches. Even after Epaphras' church planning, even after Paul's pastoral encouragement, the church at Laodicea would still find itself on the fence down the line. Right, that very vivid imagery of you're neither hot nor cold, you're lukewarm. And a lot of times we're tempted to think that that means, well, you know, that God's saying, I wish you would re- rather be all against me or all for me, but you're kind of stuck in the middle. Really what he's doing is he's making an analogy based on the world that the Laodiceans lived in. And in the Lycus Valley, in Laodicea and Colossae, they were, uh, they were in need of water. They didn't have water sources immediately around them, so they received water from either hot springs that were, that were upstream or from cold seas that were flowing as well. And so you can use hot water and you can use cold water, right? Hot water you can use for, for washing, for brewing. Cold water is good to drink. But the Laodiceans and the Colossians would have been familiar with lukewarm water, which is just kind of there. Like you ever turn on your sink and you think you're getting cold water and you start taking a nice big drink and it's just kind of, and you're like, oh, that's not what I had in mind. God says that when you think that you are set, but you ignore me, that's kind of how you taste, church. So I'm going to spit you out of my mouth. This church thinks because of their riches, because of their comfort, because of their ease, that they're good. And, and Jesus says, no, you're naked in the dark. You need me desperately. Come to me, buy from me true gold, cover your nakedness, drink deeply of the water of life. We don't know where they went from there. We don't know how the church responded to that rebuke from Jesus himself, but we know now that from Paul's writing to the church at Laodicea, it didn't fix all the problems. And some of the people you share the gospel with, some of the people you counsel, some of the people you disciple, some of the people you encourage are going to fall right back into their same old ways. Going to happen. They'll become lukewarm and just kind of float along. They'll think they're comfortable. They'll think they're good. Some of them might even fall away from the faith altogether. What you need to do is evangelize, disciple, counsel, and encourage with reckless abandon anyway. The temptation is going to be there that you feel like you're, just, you're, you're, you're working and you're working and you're doing everything you can and it just doesn't seem to have any point whatsoever. So why try? Why put in the effort? And what Paul is saying here, he is writing and sending greetings and sending letters and encouraging the church at Laodicea. And he's not ultimately responsible for where they went from there. And the fact that they are still on the fence years later doesn't make his work in vain because God has called him to it. And God is the sovereign Lord who is responsible for changing the hearts of men. Our success is not measured in worldly success. It's measured in faithfulness. Be faithful anyway. Evangelize, disciple, counsel, and encourage with reckless abandon. If people ignore you, if they, if they go back off and they fall right back into the same patterns of sin, weep, mourn, cry out to God on their behalf, but don't let that make you think your work is worthless. Obe- obey the Lord's calling. That's what we learn from a greeting to a lukewarm church. Next we see a greeting to a gracious hostess. It's actually embedded right there in the greeting to Laodicea. We see a specific greeting is given to a world named uh, to a woman named Nympha and to the church that met in her house. Give my greetings to the brothers at Laodicea and to Nympha and the church in her house. It's most likely that this is a piece, a pocket of the Laodicean church. So sometimes a church that was in a city would all gather in one central location, like we think of we as Trinity Church, we all come and gather together here on Sunday mornings. Sometimes that would happen. But more often, as the church grew, there was no meeting place that was sufficient for everybody to get under the same roof at the same time. And so you had these pockets of house churches. So the church at Laodicea might rarely or never have actually gathered all together as one church, but they would have been the church that is in Nympha's house and the church that was in 
Billy Bob's house or whoever it was. That you had these pockets of Christians meeting in houses all throughout the city. And so we see that this woman, Nympha, hosted one such group in Laodicea. What do we know about Nympha? Absolutely nothing. Her name appears nowhere else in the New Testament. We know absolutely nothing about her other than two facts. She had a house and she hosted a church in it. She took what God had given her and she used it to further the gospel and bless others. I want you to think about this. This is kind of cool to sit here back and think about. Nympha would probably find it strange that 2,000 years later we know her name. Like She's preserved in scripture. Her name appears right here alongside names like Luke, Paul, Titus. She'd probably think that was quite strange. That 2,000 years later, Christians gathered in Crestwood, Kentucky would know her name. I mean, after all, she, she was no great evangelist. She wasn't a teacher. She wasn't a writer. She was merely faithful. The Lord blessed her with a house. It was apparently a big enough, nice enough house that it was able to host people for, to gather in her house for the church. So she used it to glorify God. She was faithful with what she had. Think of the parable of the talents to the man who was given 10, the man who was given five, the man who was given one. God's not concerned with how much was given. He's concerned with what they did with what they were given. And Nympha was faithful. She was faithful. And at the end of the day, faithful is the only thing any of us are really called to be. It's going to look different for each of us based on the gifts and talents and abilities and resources that God has blessed us with. But your calling and mine are the exact same thing. We are called to be faithful. And Nympha was faithful. And so this gracious hostess has her name preserved in the word of God for all time to remind us that we just don't need Paul's and Peter's and Titus's and Timothy's, but we need all of us being faithful with what God gives us. All of us have a part to play. Dave read in the scripture reading this morning, the eye can't say to the hand and the hand to the foot, I don't need you because God has knit all of us together in his body. And he's given us all a gift to you. So when you're tempted to think, I'm, I'm not that big a deal in, in God's economy. Well, you're not, and, and nobody is. God doesn't need any of us to accomplish his will, but he has called all of us on board. God doesn't need you, but he wants you. He's called you to participate, to struggle on behalf of your brothers and sisters, whether you've got a book to write or just a house to host something in. Whatever it is, be faithful. And then lastly, the greeting to a budding pastor. The last greeting is to be passed on to a man named Archippus. And it's a specific encouragement. Verse 17, and say to Archippus, see that you fulfill the ministry that you've received in the Lord. What we know about Archippus, we know and gather from cross-referencing the two places in the Bible he appears. Here in Colossians and also in Philemon. Archippus pops up in the beginning of the book of Philemon, where Paul says this, Philemon 1, 1 through 3, Paul, a prisoner for Christ Jesus, and Timothy, our brother, to Philemon, our beloved fellow worker, and Apiphia, our sister, and Archippus, our fellow soldier, and the church in your house. Grace to you, and peace from God, our Father, and the Lord Jesus Christ. So what do we piece together here? Well, we know one, if you remember last week to what Seth told us, Onesimus, who was Philemon's former slave and the, the occasion for writing the book of Philemon, we know that Paul says he was one of the Colossians. He says he was one of you. He is one of you. And so but from that, we gather that Philemon was a part of the church at Colossae. Like this is where he was from. And this is where Onesimus was from. And so the fact that they're located there, we now know that Philemon is a part of the church there. And we can gather from the opening to Philemon that Philemon, uh, Apiphia, and Archippus hosted a church in their house. So it's most likely, I mean, this is, this is uh, conjecture, but it's pretty good conjecture, that most likely Apiphia is Philemon's wife and Archippus is his son. That would make good sense of why all three of them are called one household and they host a church in their house. And so it's likely that Archippus, Philemon's son, was now charged with pastoring a portion of, a portion of the Colossian church that he is now shepherding one of the shepherds, one of the pastors in Colossae over this church that is in their house. And Paul gives him a charge in front of everyone, 
Remember, this letter would have been read publicly to the whole church, so like no pressure from Paul here. But say to Archippus, see that you fulfill the ministry that you have received in the Lord. This guy's probably young, probably just starting a relatively new Christian because all of them were relatively new Christians in Colossae and is starting on this road of shepherding, of pastoral ministry. And Paul says, encourage him, fulfill the ministry. Not that you're drumming up, not that you're doing because you're talented, you're smart enough, you're good enough and doggone it, people like you, but that you have received from the Lord that God has given you to fulfill and to carry out. Be faithful to execute the responsibility that you've been given. Really, Archippus' calling is the same as Nympha. Be faithful with what God has given you. Execute the ministry that God has made you steward over. Paul invests specifically in those who will come after him as ministers, as shepherds, as missionaries. We see it in his training of Timothy. We see it in his training of Titus. And we see it here, even if very briefly, with Archippus. And so the reminder that that rings out to us as we read this greeting, are you investing in someone who's younger in the faith? Are you investing in someone who will come after you? Are you encouraging them to fulfill what God has given them to do? And you think, well, I mean, I'm not that far down the road. I can't encourage anybody. There's nobody younger that's coming up after me. The only thing you have to be in order to disciple another Christian is one step farther down the road than someone else. That's the only requirement. You're following Jesus. You've been following Jesus five minutes longer than that other person. You've got something to share. You've got something that you've learned along the way. You've got something to pass down. You've got something to encourage someone to fulfill the ministry that God has given them, whatever that may be. Paul invests in a budding pastor. And then we arrive in verse 18, and the greetings are all done. All the names have been dropped, and we're left with Paul. And a reminder that the church is intensely personal. I mean, we've seen that so far, right? We've seen lots of personal names and personal greetings and personal exhortations. But if we didn't get it so far, Paul's going to pour out a piece of his heart for the very last verse. Verse 18, he says, I, Paul, write this greeting with my own hand. Remember my chains. Grace be with you. Now, it might seem strange at first for Paul to say that he's writing this greeting with his own hand. I mean, after all, didn't he write the whole letter? We've been talking constantly about Paul wrote this and Paul says this and Paul said that. So what's this business about I, Paul, write this greeting with my own hand? Well, it was Paul's common practice to write his letters, to dictate his letters to a secretary. He would speak them out and have someone write them down for him. And then usually he would write the final greeting himself as, as a signature of sorts, as a way of, of showing his, his identity. And for, in 2 Thessalonians 3.17, he says, I, Paul, write this greeting with my own hand. This is the sign of genuineness in every letter of mine. It is the way I write. One reason or one, one theory that would explain this, it's, a, it's believed that Paul quite possibly had a degenerative vision problem that he didn't see very well, and that that probably was getting worse over the course of his life. It made his eyesight poor, and when you can't see real well, you can't write real well. It makes writing a chore. And it would explain what we see in one of his references in Galatians chapter 6, verse 11, where he says, see what large letters I am writing to you with my own hand. So I want you to envision you're the one that receives this letter It's being written all nice and neat. And then at the very end, you've got these big sloppy letters where it says, hey, it's me. See what large letters I'm writing to you with my own hand. This is is me, Paul. I'm taking the pen. Paul's eyesight may have been poor, but he always made it a point to take up the pen himself and write a greeting with his own hand at the end of every letter. Why? Because this was personal. This was personal. Paul wasn't a distant celebrity preacher writing a letter to people he barely gave a thought to. He's not just tapping something out on Twitter, broadcasting it out, and letting people do with it what they may. This is a deeply personal message. He had never met these people in person, remember, but even though he'd never met them, he loved them. He cared deeply for them, and he strove to see them stand mature in Jesus. 
He wanted them to know not just that he was writing to them, but that in spirit he was with them. Like that's the message of taking the pen yourself at the very end, right? He could have just as easily dictated it and, and had the secretary sign it off at the end. Nobody would have ever been the wiser, right? These people never met him. They didn't know what his writing looked like. But he always made it a point to take the pen himself as if to say, I am with you. I am with you in spirit. I'm praying for you. And he asked them as well to pray for him, right? What does he ask of them? Remember my change. That's such a haunting phrase. This guy who has written all of this and doesn't talk much about himself in his letters, but now that he's got the pen and he writes this greeting with his own hand, he simply says, remember my chains. Paul desired the fellowship and friendship of his fellow believers. This guy wasn't an island in and of himself. He rejoiced in his suffering, but he still longed for the thoughts of others. He still longed for the presence of others. To be in the presence of his brothers, his sisters, his friends. And so he asked them, remember me. Remember my chains. This isn't a plea for pity, though. Right? That doesn't line up with how we see Paul write. Paul has consistently spoken of his chains in terms of what the gospel had accomplished through them. Right? You, go, you open up the book of Philippians. It's probably where we see this the most sharply, but we see it again in 2 Timothy. When Paul writes about his chains, his sufferings, his imprisonment, it's always in the context of what it has done to further the gospel message. And so when he calls people to remember his chains, the Colossians could not likely have remembered Paul's chains without remembering Paul's countless testimonies of God's faithfulness in the midst of them. This isn't just an invitation to prayer. It's a reminder of the faithfulness of God. Remember my chains. As you read all these words that I say to you, as you read the encouragements, you read the rebukes, you read the greetings and the messages of love and fellowship, remember my chains. God is sovereign over you, over me, over everything. And his last words are equally simple and yet equally powerful. Grace be with you. To paraphrase, may you receive from the Lord abundantly more than you deserve because of the riches of Jesus' mercy. When you proclaim grace to somebody, that's what you're saying. May you receive more than you deserve. May you receive from the abundance of Christ who can do more than we could ever ask or imagine. May you receive grace. May you receive goodness. May you receive love and fellowship and faith. This is Paul's prayer for the Colossians. But he's not just writing to the Colossians, is he? I mean, the letter to Laodicea, it's lost to time and history. I don't know what he said to them, but I know what he said to the Colossians because he's saying it to me. He's saying it to you. Paul was writing to a church. God was writing to his people. Right? That's the truth that we see in the, in the Bible is that, that it's not as if Paul is, is, was just taken over by the Spirit of God and like dictated like he was a typewriter and he just, and this is what we get. We get the letter of the Colossians. No, we see Paul's personality. We see his loves. We see his passions all packed into here. And it's the same way when we see other books in the Bible. This is a letter by a guy to a group of people. But God's Spirit was carrying him along at the same time so that the words are Paul's and the words are also God's. That the words that Paul gives to the Colossians are the exact words God wants to give to the Colossians and to the Crestwoodians. Like, this is what God has to say to me. And so when Paul says, grace be with you, that's a blessing he's pronouncing on the people at Colossae, Colossae who he's never met. And that's a blessing he is pronouncing on people who will be alive 2,000 years later, right here, right now, that he's also never met. This is God's word to you. This is God's word to me. Paul prayed for you. Paul, pray, Paul pronounced a blessing of grace for you. The greatest missionary who ever lived. He doesn't know who you are. Maybe he didn't necessarily have you in mind. But through the sovereign will and power and majesty and wonder of God, he says to you, grace be with you. May you know the riches of Jesus' mercy. And that's the point of Colossians. That's why we spent seven months it's why we spent 22 sermons, so that we would be reminded 
in so many ways that the riches of the mercy of Jesus Christ are made available to sinners like us because he lived, because he died, because he rose, and because he lives again. And that changes the way that you eat and drink and do whatever you do. It changes the way you love your wife, your husband, your kids, your parents. It changes the way you interact with coworkers. It changes the way that you respond to suffering. It changes everything. God's grace is at the core of everything Colossians is about. And so now as we get ready to close the book, to wrap the scroll, to put away the letter, what do we do? What's the takeaway for us today? Well, first, does this kind of deeply personal family sound foreign to you when you think about the church? When you think about the church, do you think attendance or do you think belonging? Because those are two very different concepts of the church. And if your concept of the church is more about attendance than it is about belonging, you have the wrong concept of the church. Read this letter, read these greetings And see if it fits a concept of just church is a thing that I go to. Church is something that we are by the blood of Jesus Christ. Does this kind of deeply personal family sound foreign to you? If it does, maybe it's because you've never come into God's family. Through the invitation, through faith in the death and resurrection of Jesus. Ask yourself that question this morning. Do you know Jesus in this way? Maybe you do know Christ, and and maybe you just never thought about the church in this way. We invite you here at Trinity. We're trying to form a community that reflects this kind of church. We want to be a family, not an organization. We want to be a place where you belong. You don't attend. And so step out in faith this morning and say, God, I, I want that. And jump in with a bunch of other faithful failures, and let's walk the journey together. Are you laboring, working, agonizing over your brothers and sisters here at Trinity? Are you still conceiving of church as a bunch of people simply sitting in the same room at the same time for a couple hours a week? I mean, all of us are probably on a continuum there, right? So if, if it's, am I agonizing, laboring, working, blood, sweat, tears, fighting for everybody? Well, I don't know that I'm quite there. Or is it just a place you come and sit for a couple of hours a week? Well, I think I'm doing a little bit better than that. All of us are along a journey. All of us are along a continuum. How do you move a little farther down the road this week? Where is God calling you to step outside your comfort zone, to text that Bible verse, to ask that question, to follow up about that prayer request, to begin to establish a pattern where you care for other people more deeply, where you invest in other people more passionately? Right? It's, it, Christianity is not a, we go immediately from zero to 10 on the scale, Every day you should be moving a little bit, even if it's 0.000001. And there's going to be days where it feels like it's 0.00001. And there's going to be days where 0.00001 feels like a marathon to get there. But God gives grace. Grace be with you. Continue to walk, to press on in faith, knowing that it's God who works in you, both to will and to do according to his good purpose and pleasure. Look around this room. Seriously, look around. Look at the faces. Look at the people. We're all different. We're all unique in our gifting. But we're all called to the same thing. We're all called to be faithful. Are you treasuring the different people in this room the way Paul treasured the people named in our passage today? Are you willing to love and build them up, even knowing that it's likely that they'll disappoint you? And some of them maybe even catastrophically so. Are you willing to invest to love like that? Are you willing to be hurt for the sake of fellowship? Are you willing to bear with one another to cover a multitude of sins by your love? Because that's what we're called to do. That's where we're called to be. Because somebody's got to bear with you. Somebody's got to bear with me. We need grace. Is the church, is Trinity Church intensely personal for you? Are you getting your own hands dirty with the ink you're spilling into people's lives? If you were writing a letter, would you have to grab the pen at the end and sign it? Would you have to let us know, I'm with you in spirit every step of the way we walk together? Your growth in Jesus is my business and it's my passion. 
reflect back on these seven months and 22 sermons. If you've got time this week, all of them are online. Go pick one. Just pick random. Maybe, maybe it's one you remember really strongly. Maybe it's one that you missed. Maybe it's one that you were here for, but you don't remember it. It's probably one that I preached. It just kind of floated right out the ear. Pick one and just cue it up while you're cooking dinner, while you're in the office, while you're writing a paper. Listen to one of the sermons. Be reminded of the things God has taught you. What has God been teaching you through this book? Is your knowledge of Jesus greater now than when we started back in September? You want to know how to, you want to, know how to measure that? Is your love for Jesus greater now than when we started back in September? Because ultimately, it doesn't matter how much I know, it doesn't matter how much you know, if it's not moving us to a deeper love for Jesus, which shows itself in the way that we love him, the way that we love others, the things that we do, then what good is it? What good is it if we end up like the Laodiceans where we think, I'm rich, I'm at ease, I have comfort, and Jesus is standing in the back saying, you're poor, pitiable, blind, and naked. Be filled with the word. And know that God's grace will transform you day by day. Walk in obedience and joy at the calling that we've received. One book down. 65 to go. And most of them are a lot bigger than this one. You could live a thousand lifetimes and never exhaust the treasure that is to be found in the word of God. I don't remember the source of the quote. It sounds like something C.S. Lewis would say, but I'm I'm not going to 100% put his name on it. But the thing with God's word is that it, it is so shallow that a baby can play there and not be in danger of drowning, but it's so deep that the most seasoned diver could never plunge the depths. So let's keep walking. Let's check off book number 65. And let's keep growing in grace, knowing that Christ is with us and he never calls us to do a thing and he never sends us down a path that he hasn't already done or that he hasn't already walked. And he gives grace for every step. Let's glorify him together. Pray with me. God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ, we thank you for your amazing grace. We thank you for the depths of your faithfulness, for your mercies that are new every morning, that every week when we've cracked this book, we've found gold, we've found treasure, not because we're smart and good at digging, but because it's there, it's everywhere. You have given us such a vast treasure of riches in your words. You've spoken to us. We can know you, the God of the universe. May we marvel at that. May we wonder at your grace, at your goodness, at your great love. And God, may you mold and shape us. As we read these greetings, as we see these names, as we hear these stories that we know just a a little tiny sliver of, may you remind us that you have called us and knit us together in one body. That all the things you call us to do as Christians Come in the context of community. God, I can't be obedient to you by myself in the closet in the way that you've called me to. Help us to love one another. Help us to encourage one another. Help us to struggle, to agonize for one another in our prayers and our words and our efforts. Help us to rebuke. Help us to lift up, to rejoice when others rejoice, to weep when they weep. Father, build us and knit us into a family. Bring people from every tribe and tongue and nation and make us into a multitude that no man can count, that we may stand before your throne and proclaim the glories of your holiness, the majesty of your great love. And Father, remind us that though that sounds big and exciting and cosmic and glorious, it begins as we walk out the door today. It begins with feelings of doubt and fears. It begins with relationships that try our patience. It begins with sins that we feel we just can't shake. It begins with jobs we don't like. It begins with classes that we wish would just be over. It begins with fears and failures. 
It begins with pain and suffering. It begins on Sundays, Mondays, and Tuesdays. Father, help us this week to put our feet on the ground, clad in the gospel. May you help us to strap grace to our backs, the Bible at our side. May you help us to walk through the mud, through the dirt, by the grace that Jesus gives, by the strength that he provides. We need you, Lord, we need you. Every hour we need you. You are one defense. You are righteousness. My God, how we need you. Remind us of that today. Remind us of that through the week and help us to remind each other of that this week, that we don't walk alone. But Father, we pray that in this place of faithful failures, that you would be growing us Knit us closer together as only you can do. Bring the unity that only your spirit can create. And help us to look for those moments when you call us to obedience as part of that effort. Give us strength. Give us peace. Give us love. That we might give you glory. In Christ's name we pray. Amen.